tonight I'm going to start, well, I'm going to do a little introduction to Talmud in general, just in case any of you haven't had the, uh, the opportunity or the privilege of um, having Talmud classes before, to think about what Talmud is. Because um, we throw the word around all the time, we quote Talmud all the time, we, we actually misquote mostly what, what most rabbis do. Um, is most rabbis, and I'm one of them, I, I have to admit, often say, the Talmud says, and then we'll give a quote of something. But the Talmud doesn't say anything. A person says something. The Talmud is a collection. The Talmud is 20 volumes of conversations that rabbis had during a particular period of time. So even though I'm guilty as well of saying the Talmud says, it would be more accurate to say in the Talmud, Somebody says, and with any luck to be able to quote who that person is. Talmud comes from the word Talmud. Um, uh, and again, I appreciate everybody uh, uh, muting themselves. Muting. Yeah. Um, so uh, the word Talmud itself actually comes from the Hebrew word to study, Lilmod, Lamad, Talmud. Um, and it records, of course, rabbinic teachings spanning about 600 years, from the first century of the Common Era through the sixth century. Um, you know, it was finalized in the, in the year 500, around 500. And it's really two separate works. For those of you who have seen the Talmud, it's the Mishnah and then commentary on the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a compilation of Jewish laws and written in Hebrew, edited around the year 200 uh, in Israel. And then the second part of what makes the Talmud the Talmud is around the Mishnah there are commentaries, comments and conversations that in Hebrew is called, well, Gemara, which is the rabbinic commentaries and discussions on the Mishnah, written in both Hebrew and in Aramaic, because Aramaic was really the language of the time when it was being written about, both in Israel and then in Babylonia. Because um, actually there's two Talmuds. There's the Jerusalem Talmud and there's the Babylonian Talmud. Most of the time when someone quotes the Talmud, they're quoting the Babylonian Talmud. That was sort of the definitive one. The Jerusalem Talmud is a smaller document. Um, usually printed in about 20 volumes. I have 20 volumes somewhere, I think in my office at the synagogue. It's about 5,400 pages, 2,500,000 words. And some of you know that there's a, a tradition of studying it's called a daf yomi, a page of Talmud a day, that, that's uh, very popular in Orthodox circles. It's now there's a worldwide uh, opportunity. You could do it yourselves. You can log on to daf yomi, to the day of, a page a day of Talmud. But if you study the Talmud a page a day, it takes you seven years to get through it all. So you have to have faith in the future in order to start studying Talmud a day at a time. Um, so a, a quick Talmud example, which isn't in the chat, a quick Talmud example. The Torah teaches, let's see, the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments is to keep the Sabbath holy, right? So the Talmud would ask, that is the rabbis of the Talmud would ask, well, what does holy mean? You know, how do you keep the Sabbath holy? Do you keep time holy? What constitutes work? If one of the things of keeping Shabbat holy is you don't work, then what's work? And ultimately, this long conversation in the Talmud ends up with 39 different categories of work. Is it only physical exertion? Or is it a job that one is paid for? Or is it labor that you'd rather not do? If you love doing it, is it still work? How many people have heard, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life, right? So, so what's work? <clears throat> is that work? I never felt that my job, quote, as a rabbi was work. I did get paid for it. I still get paid for it, actually, in a sense. But it, I never thought of it was work. I thought of it more as a privilege. But, and of course, when you're a rabbi, you get to work on Shabbat. <laughs> that's part of what you do. But, uh, or is it something else entirely? And that's the kind of questions that Talmud wrestles with. Now, the Torah, the five books of Moses' Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah is what in Hebrew is called the written law, right? And we have... I'm sure you all know this, but just to give a context, we have written law and we have what's called the oral law. The written law, Torah Shabbat, is literally the text of the Torah. 
but according to the tradition of the rabbis, both the written Torah and the oral Torah, which is everything that came afterwards, was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Why did they do that? Why did they say that? In fact, in the very beginning of, here's a copy of the, the Mishnah Avot, which I didn't give you, and it isn't in the, uh, what you'll get in a minute. But the very beginning of it, here's what it says. Moses received the Torah at Sinai and handed it to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, and the prophets handed it to the men of the great assembly. They, the men of the great assembly, said certain things, and then they tell you what those rabbis said. This is what begins this section of the Mishnah, which then becomes a section of the Talmud, because it's a direct link from Moses on Mount Sinai to all the rabbis. And the rabbis want to give themselves credibility. So the way they give themselves credibility, so that you should follow what I say, because I'm a rabbi, in my conversations in the Talmud is, well, Moses gave the Torah, to, God gave the Torah literally to Moses. Moses handed it, like as if it's a baton, handed it to Joshua. Joshua handed it to the elders of the time, and they handed it to us. Us being the rabbis. Therefore, whatever I teach you is as if it literally came from Moses on Mount Sinai, and that gives me the credibility, which is why they wrote that for themselves, because it's how they give themselves a pat on the back and say, this is why you should follow me. This is as if you're literally listening to God speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai. So happens, beginning of the third century of the Common Era, a rabbi named Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the Prince, edited a work that became known as the Mishnah, which this is in. Called Mishnah means the teaching. He pulled together all the known laws of the time, and he divided them into six sections called orders, which are Zeraim seeds, agricultural laws, Shabbat and festivals, marriage and divorce, civil and criminal laws, holy things, meaning sacrifices at the time, and ritual purity. Those are the six things that make up the Mishnah. Then the Talmud has long 20 volumes worth of conversations about. Each of those sections is broken down into subsections, little sections. Well, when the temple was destroyed in the year 70 by the Romans, our whole, as you know, our whole religious system was based on priests and the priesthood and the temple with a capital T in Jerusalem and bringing sacrifices and offerings. That's what our, quote, religion was. So what did we do when the temple was destroyed? The Romans took over, kicked us into exile, eliminated the priesthood. It would be as if our religion should disappear. So what saved our religion? Rabbis saved our religion, right? What saved our religion was that one rabbi, Yochanan ben Zakkai, made a deal with Vespasian, who was the general in charge at the time, and said, I will get everyone to give up Jerusalem, which he was invading at the time. If you'll give me this little town called Yavne, up in the north, you'll give me this little town called Yavne, and if I can create a little school there and teach there in safety and protection, you're going to have Jerusalem, which was the big prize. So, and, and you may know that the way that, that Yochanan ben Zakkai got out of Jerusalem and had this negotiation was that he was smuggled out in a coffin because it was the only way they could get out. So he smuggled him out in a coffin thinking he was dead, popped out, had this conversation with, with Vespasian, and Vespasian said, sure, I'll make the deal. And as a result, we ended up with saving Judaism because that little town of Yavna became the center of what grew into rabbinic Judaism, which is what we're still living with, the version of rabbinic Judaism thousands of years later. They taught Torah there. They created rabbinic Judaism to replace the priesthood. Prayer took the place of sacrifice. Synagogues, small little groupings, took the place of the temple with a capital T. And rabbis for the next 150 years, five generations following the destruction of the temple became known as the repeaters in Hebrew is Tanaim because they memorized. Remember what memorization used to be like? 
some of you, some of us, are old enough to know we all used to memorize stuff. When I was in school, we used to memorize poetry, for example. Well, we used to, people used to memorize entire books. Some of you may have already in your lives memorized entire books. The sacred books of every religious tradition used to be literally memorized by the leaders of that rabbinic, that sacred tradition, by the priests, or in our case, the rabbis, who literally memorized all of the texts so they could pass them on and teach them to the next generation. In this day and age, because I now have this, I don't remember anything. I, got, I don't remember my own phone number I pretty much have to look up. I don't remember. Th- and I realize it's because I have trained myself not to remember anything. I've literally trained myself to not have a good memory. I'm going to start training myself to get my memory back, I think. But because we used to be trained to remember things, because that was the only way. So we'd memorize things. Memorize poetry, memorize books, memorize chapters, memorize sacred texts, memorize lots of things. So that's what the rabbis did that ended up uh, writing eventually. That's why it was called the oral law. It was literally the oral law because they weren't writing it down. In fact, they had a rule against writing it down because the written Torah was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So you didn't want to compete with that. So their own value system said that's that's the written Torah we should only have an oral tradition. So they had an oral tradition. But guess what? After teaching the oral tradition for 150 years, it starts getting pretty big. That's a lot to remember. So eventually, that's why Yehuda HaNasi, Judah the Prince, said, okay, we can't keep remembering all these things. We better write them down. So they changed their value system to say, we'll still call it the oral tradition, because it's not the five books of Moses, but we better start writing it down or we're going to forget. We're going to lose it. So they started writing it down. What they wrote down became the tractates of the Mishnah. Once they had that fixed, about the year 200, then they started commenting about the Mishnah. And ultimately, 300 years later, by the time they got to year 500, it was time to collect all those. And the commentaries that had been literally over hundreds of years. And if you've ever, I I should have shown you, but if you've ever seen a page of Talmud, there's text written in the middle. First of all, there's Mishnah, short. Then there's Gomorrah, which is the law, all the conversations the rabbis have. And then all around the outside edges are other commentaries on the commentaries that took place over hundreds of years before they literally printed for mass distribution a book of Talmud. So, and what we continue today, what we're doing, what I'm doing right now, what I will be doing in a minute, once I get to more text, is we're continuing the same tradition, right? Of commenting on comments that were commenting on comments that were ultimately commenting on texts, because everything goes back to the Torah. So, so it turns out much of the Talmud deals with very mundane details about life. What objects can be carried in and out of a house on Shabbat? Who's responsible for damages caused by an ox that gores another animal? How long must a woman wait after her monthly period before she can resume marital relations? The rabbis found God literally in the details of life. And and the Talmud really was about trying to live a sacred life. What does it mean to live a sacred life. That's what the conversations were ultimately about. How do you find holiness in the everyday? How do you find sacredness in the everyday? Is your hand up because you want to say something? Judith, yes. Stephen, is the Talmud a fixed body and is the Mishnah a fixed body? Yes. They they don't keep adding to those. The Mishnah was fixed around the year 200. The Talmud was, do I even have it here? No. The Talmud was fixed around the year 500. Okay. Then, then there were comments on the Talmud. So when it started being mass produced, when printing happened and printing presses happened and people could make books like we do today, different editions of the Talmud might have some different choices around the outside edges 
of commentaries about the Talmud, but the Talmud itself, which is the center of every page of any version of the Talmud, is Mishnah and Gomorrah. Mishnah and the comments on it, which is what the Gomorrah is called, that's fixed. Nobody changes that. Okay. The reason, I, the reason I ask is that in Berlin, at the memorial to the Holocaust, there are 2,711 sarcophagi. It's hard to bring that up in a conversation. But yeah. you know those cement blocks that they have, yeah. the sarcophagi. And I ask, why 2,711? It's the number of folios in the Talmud. In the Talmud? There we go. Yes. There we go. So just in case you ever need to know that. That's good to know. Yeah, Harvey. <laughs> so at this point, is this happening in Israel or is this in Babylon? This is most, it's happening in both places. There's, that's why there's a Jerusalem Talmud and there's a Babylonian Talmud. But the Babylonian one became the bigger one because that was really where the seat of, of the most knowledge and the most... Uh, uh, challenging and authoritative, frankly, uh, rabbinic authorities ended up in the in the uh, uh, the Sanhedrin in uh, in Babylonia. So the Babylonian Talmud, which is that's why it's bigger than the Jerusalem Talmud, became the definitive, the more widely distributed uh, Talmud of its day throughout the world, with all of the diaspora, with all the diaspora communities. See, the other thing is that because. You know, Judaism is a little challenging um, in the fact that we don't have a pope. I longed to be the Jewish pope, but nobody ever voted for me. You know, we don't have a central authority. So, and we've never really had a central authority because we're Jews. So you get two Jews and we have five opinions. So you know, there's too much arguing going on for us to have a central authority. But we did have great rabbinic luminaries like Maimonides and people like that. So what used to happen during the 2,000 years of our dispersion and diaspora between the Romans and when 1948, when Israel got reestablished as, a, as an autonomous country, was wherever Jews were in the world, if they had questions, rabbinic questions, religious questions that they couldn't answer, they would go to their local rabbi or their local most respected rabbi, and if that rabbi wasn't sure what the answer should be, that rabbi would write a letter to one of the world-renowned rabbis that other communities acknowledged as an authority. <clears throat> like Maimonides was one of them. He used to get letters from around the world. He was in the 12th century. He used to get letters around the world um, asking questions about things, about conversion, about who's counts as a Jew, and all kinds of things like that. And then he or other rabbinic luminaries would write an answer, that would, and they would send it back. And when the community accepted it, that became another whole body of literature called responsa, responsa literature, because it was literally responses to questions. That continues to this day. There is responsa literature in that's the with orthodox traditional orthodox rabbinic authorities. There is responsa literature in the conservative movement, the conservative rabbinic association, ever since it was founded, had a law committee that would respond in the conservative movement to to questions, rabbinic questions, legal questions about. In their case, it was things like who counted for a minion and all kinds of things like that. The reform movement also has a whole history of responsa literature, as long as the reform movement from the 19th century was in place to this day. The Reconstructionist movement, uh, being the youngest movement, the Reconstructionist movement does not have a body of responsa literature in the same way, but we still, because we, we have a kind of a different way of functioning, but we still have rabbis who respond to things. David Teutsch has an ongoing, if you want to log on to, to uh, uh, the uh, National Movement's website of the Reconstructionist Movement, uh, David Teutsch teaches these classes periodically that is essentially responsive literature about answering questions of the day based with a Reconstructionist perspective, Reconstructionist medical perspective of, you know, and and I would do the same thing. In fact, I'm doing it right now because what I'm doing as a Reconstructionist rabbi 
when I get in a minute to these texts is my own Reconstructionist response to traditional texts. So um, the Talmud hasn't expanded. People continue to study it, just like the Torah hasn't changed, and we read it, do a Torah study every week, right? So and many of you are in Torah study. You either go to Rabbi Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study, some of you come to the Saturday morning Torah study. Either way, the text remains, or some of you read my brilliant book, A Year with Mordecai Kaplan, which is also a Torah commentary, right? So I take my Torah, I wrote that book, one line of Torah for each, from each parasha, from each portion, and my little commentary, and some comment from Mordecai Kaplan, some quotations from him that I decided in my own view, related to the theme that I picked from that Torah portion. And then, as you know, the third section is a personal kind of commentary um, about some personal story or whatever that I think relates. Okay, so that's a kind of body of literature, part of a body of literature that's ongoing Torah commentaries, even though the Torah hasn't changed in 3,000 years. You know, we got the Torah rolled up in the ark. It's exactly the same. It's copied letter by letter, one letter at a time. Nobody changes the Torah. And yet, as one of the rabbis in the Mishnah said, turn it, turn it, turn it, because everything is in it. He literally meant turn it because that's what you do with a Torah scroll. You, you turn it because it's on a scroll. And we've discovered, any of you who have been in Torah study, realize magically, whatever the Torah portion is, somehow relates to my life in 2021, 2020, this week, whatever is happening in my family, somehow, whatever's going on in the Torah, somehow seems to relate to it. And that's part of the wonder of sacred literature, because you could do that with anybody's sacred literature, not just ours. You know, which is why when I was giving my sermon on Yom Kippur, for example, I was, you know, quoting Sufi mystics, because it's sacred text is sacred text. And we find, and as it says in the Talmud, when rabbi, a rabbi asked, who is wise? Let me think, do I have that in this one? Then maybe I'll have you go to it. I don't think so. Rabbi asked, who is wise? And the answer was, one who learns from everyone. That's, that's who's wise. Ezu chacham alamed nikol adam, it says in Hebrew. Who is wise, one who lives from everyone. Now, the only other preface to the text itself, which I'm going to turn to in a second, is that there's two kinds of categories of conversation in the Talmud. One that's called halacha and one that's called agada. Halacha is, technically, we think of it as law. The legal parts this is for Michael Lurie and the other lawyers who are here, the legal parts of the Talmud, the legal parts of rabbinic literature, where the rabbis say, this is what you have to do. This is how you do this. This is how you do this. This is the what you say for this. You know, and there's laws. This is how you keep Shabbat, laws. This is how you, the right way, according to the rabbis of the Talmud, to celebrate Passover. These are the things that have to be on the Seder plate. The, the kind of rabbinic laws. This is their civil laws, there's criminal laws, there's religious laws. Legal discussions, lots of legal discussions. <clears throat> and then, and halacha, the word for law, doesn't really mean law. It comes from the Hebrew word lehalech, which means to walk or to go. It's really the way. It's the way in Hebrew, which is what we call the law. It deals with questions of what we're obligated to do and how we're obligated to do it. It's serious, it's detailed. For many of us, it seems often dry and legalistic. I assume if you're a lawyer, you think legalistic is not dry, but exciting. But in any event, <laughs> that's for you to know, for all the lawyers here. So, in the meantime, that's halakha. Agada literally means like legend. Agada are the stories, what we tend to call midrash, the stories that we make up, the exciting, sometimes engaging stories that tell us not what we do, but kind of why we should do it. They address the mind and the heart, and they're sort of two sides of the same same coin for us. It's like a famous Midrash. Famous Talmud discussion. No, I'm not going to have it. 
I just realized I'm going to have it next in December, so I better not have it now. So I'll have nothing to talk about in December when it's Hanukkah, and I'm doing one of these because I'm going to talk about the laws of Hanukkah on Hanukkah. So I won't talk about it. But a midrash. What's a midrash? Here, there's a the the Torah talks about Abraham. We all know Abraham, the first Jew. <clears throat> we all know that Abraham left his father's. It said from the Torah portion, Lech Lecha. It says you should leave your father's house and everything, and you should go off to a land that I will show you. The Talmud has this conversation. Why did Abraham leave? And in the Talmud, the discussion, which is a midrash, talks about, well, because the town that he lived in was filled with idolaters. How do we know that? Because the midrash then says, in fact, Abraham's father, Terach, was an idol maker. Any of you have probably remember this story. He was an idol maker. That was, he made idols, statues. He made statues. Do I have a statue? Here's a statue. He made little statues. Okay. This is a little rabbi statue. He made statues. And, of course, in the Midrash, in the Talmud, it tells the story of, that you probably all know, that one day, Terach left the store and put Abraham, Avram at the time, in charge and said, you watch the store, the idol store, I'll be back after lunch. And he leaves, and Abraham's playing with his idols and accidentally knocks one of them over because they're made of clay, and it breaks. And he freaks out because this is an idol store, and he's selling idols, and he just broke one of his dad's idols. So, of course, being the brilliant, smart, clever, maybe kid, he breaks all of the idols in the store except for the biggest one, and he sticks a stick in, on the biggest one, and when dad comes back and says, what the hell is happening here? Where all have all my idols? Abraham says, well, dad, the minute you left, they started arguing with each other, and they were fighting, and they had this big fight, and at the end, only the biggest one ended up staying still because they killed all the other ones. His father goes, you know, and smacks him in the face and says, what are you talking about? I just made all these things. They can't do anything. And of course, in the Midrash, Abram goes, aha! If they can't do anything, what are we worshiping them for? And realizes, ah, there's got to be some god other than idols that human beings make. And therefore, says the Midrash, it says in the Torah, in Lech Lecha, you should go and leave your father's house. That's why you should leave your father's house to a land that I will show you, because your father was an idol maker. And I want you to be, I'm going to be your god. You'll be my people if you accept me as your god and I'll make you a blessing to all the families of the earth. All of the families of the earth will be blessed because of you, right? So that's, in, that's what rabbinic literature is about. That's the, the Agadah version, not the legal version. But those are the things that most people find most interesting, most people, not the lawyers, of course, but most people, because they tell stories that speak to our hearts. So, uh, Rebecca, did you put that back in yet? I did. I'm doing it a third or fourth time now. Okay. So in the chat, if you want, Rebecca has placed tonight's document, which is actually called my favorite Talmud lessons from a vote, a vote, which I was holding in my hand. <clears throat> is the only tractate, the only, one of the names we call the sections of the Talmud, the only tractate in the Talmud without commentary. So it's literally, and I told you, it's Mishnah and then commentary, which we call Gomorrah. So it's the only tractate of the Talmud that has no Gomorrah. It's just has, it's exactly the same as it was originally in the Mishnah version. Why? Because Avod is this little practical book of aphorisms. That's why. So the rabbis of who compiled the Talmud decided it didn't need commentary. It was commentary in and of itself. It was a whole series of chapters with one pithy saying after another by different rabbis. So the sages of, and it's, we call it Pirkei Avot, the, the sayings of our fathers, Avot literally means fathers or ancestors, to be a little more gender neutral, spans a period from the 2nd century BCE to the 2nd century CE. By the way, you all know why we say BCE and CE, I assume, but just for the sake of clarity, I will remind you that in uh, we don't do AD, 
and B.C. as Jews, because we think B.C. means before Christ, and being Jews, who haven't accepted Jesus as Christ, we wanted to come up with something else, and A.D. is Anadomino, the year of our Lord, same problem. So we say B.C.E. before the Common Era, or C.E. the Common Era, which is simply a euphemism for B.C. and A.D., but, you know, makes us feel better somehow. In any event, so, so you can say anything you want, but that's what I mean when I'm saying it. So Avot, Pirkei Avot, represents ethical insights of five different pairs of rabbis, leaders of the Sanhedrin, which was the rabbinical court, and then 43 sages who come after them. Sanhedrin, the name Sanhedrin, which you may have heard, it, which comes from... The, is what we refer to this sort of collection of rabbis where they sat and they argued and they discussed and they passed laws and rules, comes from a Greek term meaning sitting together, Sanhedrin. It's a 71-member council of Jewish sages, the Sanhedrin. There was a Sanhedrin Hagadol in Jerusalem, back to what Harvey was asking about. There was a Sanhedrin Katan in other cities with 23 members. But uh, And then there was a Sanhedrin who was led by a Nasi, which meant the prince, who acted as the president, and uh, an Av Beitin, literally means father of the court, who was sort of the vice president. And then there were five different pairs who compromised the Nasi and his assistant. Um, and some of them, you're going to see, they end up in these quotes. So I picked a few of them that I happen to like. So if you want to read it, you can, but I'm going to read it anyway. So beginning with the very beginning of the Tractate of Avot, of the Talmud, Shimon HaTzadik. Shimon HaTzadik literally means Simon the Just, Tzadik, Tzadik is a just person. He was the high priest, as I mentioned there, in the second century BCE. And in the Talmud, it says, most of you know this because it was a very popular Hebrew song, Shimon HaTzadik said, Al shlosha devarim ha'olam omed al ha'torah ve'al ha'avodah ve'al gemilut chasadim. We sing it all the time. I won't sing it right now, but we sing it all the time. On three things the world stands, on Torah, on avodah, which means sort of sacred worship, it literally means work, avodah, but we call it avodah in Hebrew, the same term for, for prayer, because prayer at the time that we called it avodah, was literally physical sacrifices. You take an animal, you cut it up, you burn it up, you do things, or you offered grains, or, but it was work. Worship in the time of the temple was literally work, right? So it was called avodah, which meant sacred worship, and gemilut chasadim, or acts of loving kindness. Throughout the Torah, I mean, throughout the Talmud, there will be different people who said... The world stands on three things. And then they'll tell you their own three things. Uh, Just to make it interactive, why do you think there's so many people who said the world stands on three things? Anybody? Okay, the answer is because, remember I told you that they used to memorize? They had to memorize all this. It was oral. Easiest way to remember things is if you put it in threes, three things. So they had lots of threes of this and three of that, and this person said three. Remember I said beginning, Moses received the Torah at Mount Sinai, and he handed it to Joshua, and Joshua to the elders, and the elders to the prophets, and the prophets handed it to the men of the great assembly, that's this. Well, and then it goes on to say, and the men of the great assembly said three things. Be careful in judgment raise up many disciples, and make a fence around the Torah, a susiad the Torah. Actually, even though I didn't give you this text, I just read it to you, and I actually find it, it's a fascinating thing. This is what this section of the Talmud begins with. That's the opening, make a fence around the Torah. I don't know if anybody knows what that means. What do you mean, make a fence around the Torah? So I'll give you an example of what making a fence around the Torah. This is classic Rabbinic logic. This is how rabbis think. Well, rabbis thought in Talmudic and rabbinic times. What they thought was, how can we prevent people from sinning, from transgressing a mitzvah, a commandment? 
we will create barriers to the commandment so that it makes it hard to accidentally slip and trans, you know, have a transgression. For example, you may all know, you may not all know, <clears throat> but I'll tell you, it is a traditional Jewish law, rabbinic law, that when Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat, you are forbidden to blow the shofar. If you, if you spend a lot of time at KI, you probably heard the shofar, even when Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat, because we make up our own rules. But <clears throat> the tradi- if you go to a conservative synagogue, you go to an Orthodox synagogue, and it's Rosh Hashanah on Shabbat, like maybe this year, or last year, <clears throat> I guess this year was Kol Nidre on Shabbat, that Rosh Hashanah on Shabbat, whenever, you will not hear the shofar being blown, because in the Talmud, the rabbis made a rule that said, you don't blow the shofar if it falls on Shabbat. Now, you might ask the question, and if not, I'm going to ask it out loud to myself, Rabbi Reuben, why did the rabbis say it, you're forbidden to blow the shofar if Rosh Hashanah, on Rosh Hashanah, if Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat? What does one thing have to do with the other? And the reason would be because in their earlier conversations in the Talmud about what constitutes work and rest on Shabbat, and they came up with 39 categories of work, one of those categories of work is repairing something. You're not allowed to repair something on Shabbat. If you have a tear, you can't sew it up on Shabbat, or you'd be transgressing the mitzvah of resting on Shabbat. You'd be breaking the rules of Shabbat. May I interject one thing? Oh, you may man, interject I, anytime. I had one Orthodox Jewish friend in grammar school, and he said, in my household, we can't answer the phone. On Shabbat. And right. I said, why? Well, it's work. What do you mean it's work? Well, kindling fire is work, and electricity is fire running through. I said, it's not work, it's play. No, electricity is fire running through the lines, and therefore turning on electric light, which I did once in an Orthodox temple. Shame on me. Well, I suppose, mm-hmm. So anyway, just, I'm familiar with the concept of work that isn't really work. Made you the Shabbos good. So, uh, yeah, it's why if you go to Cedar sinai Hospital, for example, on Saturday, you can go into the Shabbat elevator, so you don't have to push a button, and it just goes and stops on every floor, up and down and up and down all day long for 24 hours, so that you don't have to violate the Shabbat and push the button and turn on electricity, which is why Orthodox people have, you know, automatic lights going on and all kinds of other things like that. So the rabbi said... You know, uh, I'm a little concerned that if we let people blow the shofar on Shabbat, if it's Rosh Hashanah, what happens if the shofar blower picks up the shofar and goes, and there's something clogging up the shofar, and he can't blow it? What's he going to do, naturally? He's going to fix it. He's going to go, oh, my God. I'm responsible for blowing the shofar today. There's something wrong with my shofar. Give me something where I can fix my shofar. And he'll immediately transgress Shabbat by fixing the shofar so he can blow the shofar because it's Rosh Hashanah. That's what the rabbis meant by making a fence around the Torah. Here's the law. Let's put something here so that you can't even get to close enough to accidentally screw up and transgress that negative commandment. So that's what starts the very first section of this tractate in the Talmud is make a make a fence around the Torah. And there's lots and lots and lots of Jewish laws that some of us in the 21st century who look at these from a purely rational perspective may say, that seems like a silly law that they created. Why would they do that? Why did they do that? Why did they make that up? And many of us, myself included, think those particular rabbis had a very low opinion of human intelligence, particularly with men. They had a very low opinion of male human intelligence and a very low opinion of male's ability 
to control their own emotions and passions. And so they made all kinds of rules about men and women shouldn't be in the same room together and all kinds of other things. Women should cover their, cut their hair. That's why Orthodox women cut their hair and put on wigs and whatever with the making a fence around so that somebody wouldn't be uh, unhealthily excited by the sexuality of a woman and somehow jump on her and transgress a commandment of sexual violation. So thinking that all of us, because we're men, have no self-control at all. Some of you might agree with that, but that's how the rabbis thought. So, um, <laughs> so that's what making offense around the Torah is. So Shimon Tzadik, who was the high priest in the second century, said on three things the world stands, on the Torah, on Avodah, and on Gimiludah Chasadim. He didn't say which was more important. He said these three pillars. And not only do they use three because it's a mnemonic device, it was easier to remember, but they use three because three is the most solid way of having something to sit on, to stand on. Having a, a, a three-legged stool is better. Can I ask you a question? Yes, you may. Um, so I was just looking through some of the, your favorite Talmud lessons. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and can you give us a little context about Hillel used to say, if I am not for myself, who will sure. be for me? If I am only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? I mean, it goes into what you were saying, right? But I, yes. what's the context of that? Okay, the- so I'll go right to that. It's number three. I'll skip number two for a minute, even though the best Sorry. part of number three is Jesus. But, um, <laughs> well, let me just say one thing about number two, and then I'll get to number three. Number two is Yahushua ben Parachia. Yahushua ben Parachia was one of the... the um, uh, I said there were Zugot, there were these couples. So Yoshua ben Parachia and Nitai of Arbel were, were buddies, and they both were at the same time, time period, and they used to, to uh, come up with ideas and, and aphorisms together. But in any event, Yoshua ben Parachia, who was somebody that I quoted in my bar mitzvah speech when I had my bar mitzvah in 1962 or whenever it was, um, he was the head of the Sanhedrin in 130 BCE. This is, I, I put it in the text so you can see it's rather interesting. When King Alexander Yanai sought to crush the Sanhedrin and kill, they executed 800 sages, he fled to Egypt. I don't know how many of you have been to Egypt, but fled to Egypt. I was in Egypt once in Cairo. Very exciting. I was in Cairo during the, uh, during the Arab Spring because I was wow. stupid. But uh, we went to, Thede uh, <laughs> and I took, and we were on a cruise that, that uh, canceled the trip to Cairo um, because there was stuff going on. And we thought, we're so close, because we were in the Suez Canal. We're so close. And we had an overnight. So we sort of snuck away and hired a, an American Express guy, and we ended up going to Cairo for the day. <laughs> And there were demonstrations going on, and we're driving through, and they're chanting, and we don't know what they're chanting. It turned out they were chanting death to Jews, but we were waving, thinking that they were, you know, chanting about freedom. But in any event, um, so uh, Yosher ben Parachia fled to Egypt. And according to Jewish tradition, literally in the Talmud, this is in the Talmud, in the tractate called Sota, page 47a, that... He and Jesus, who had fled also, returned to Jerusalem at the same time. Literally, Jesus is mentioned in the Talmud in this particular section as going with Yoshua ben Parachia back to, interesting, a little aside, back to, uh, to Israel, to Jerusalem. And uh, this is what I quoted this particular passage in my own bar mitzvah speech. I'm 71, so it was quite a while ago. Uh, get yourself a teacher, acquire a friend, and give everyone the benefit of the doubt. I love Yoshua ben Prati. I just thought he was, you know, he said... Would you say that again? Yes. Get yourself a teacher, find a friend, and judge everyone to the side of benefit. Give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Um, in Hebrew, it's... Which means friend, 
and judge everyone charitably. That would be another way of saying That's beautiful. loved him. You know, the importance of having a teacher and having a friend, having someone from whom you can learn and having someone with whom you can learn, which because remember, all these people are teachers. They're all speaking in the context of, in the context of an academy of learning. It's going to school and learning with these rabbis. That's what's going on. Hillel was among, obviously, the most famous of all of the rabbis. Hillel and Shammai were the two schools who were the pair together. They were always arguing throughout the, the Talmud. Hillel said this, and Shammai said this, and Hillel always won, like always. Whenever there's a dispute between Hillel and Shammai, Hillel always won. And what's interesting is, when the rabbis themselves later ask, why is it that the decisions ultimately came down favoring the school of Hillel and not the school of Shammai? This is so appropriate for the age in which we are living. They said the reason was because when Hillel's school taught, when they would give an opinion, they would first quote Shammai, and give the respect due to Shammai's thinking and teaching, and then give whatever their opposing argument might be, which they thought made more sense. But because of the respect that they gave and the dignity which they showed to quote the opposition to those with whom they disagreed about many different things, they were the ones who ultimately won out in these conversations. This is one of Hillel's most famous sayings. Some of you actually know it in Hebrew, Im'ain anili mili, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? atzmi. And if I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? So, what does he mean? Well, what do you think it means? Evelyn, when you read this, what did, it, what did it feel like to you? If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? I mean, look at the things you're passionate about, the socially relevant and caring things that you get involved with. And it, it, that's the, if I'm not, if I'm for myself alone, what am I? But in order to be the person who stands up and does the work that you do, for example, in this world, uh, caring about water and things like that, you have to have a sense of your own self-worth. If if I'm not for myself, you know, who will be for me is a statement of my own recognizing my own personal self-worth. The context is actually that the very first thing that's written about human beings in the Torah is that God says, human beings are created in the image of God. Why does it say that? In my opinion, it says that to set the stage for all of the subsequent conversations about human beings and all of our foibles and all of our mistakes and all of our screw-ups and all of our challenges so that we begin our lives and our self-reflection, looking in the mirror as we do every high holidays, period, with a fundamental belief in our own inherent self-worth. If we are made in the divine image, we must be worthy. We may make mistakes. We all make mistakes. We all do all for this sin that I did this year, one way or another, and the screw up about this and what I said about that, and I shouldn't have done that, and I shouldn't have said that. And if I could take it back, I would stuff the words back in my mouth and things like that that we do in life because we're all human beings. But we're supposed to begin with that every human being is, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? But that's not enough then you end up with a narcissist. We know how that works out. When you end up with a narcissist who's running the show in your own life, in your own family, in your own community, in your own country, in your own world, whatever it happens to be, if I'm only for myself, everything gets twisted through the lens of what's, what's in it for me. You know, I put that in a sermon once. We all listen to the same radio station, WIIFM. What's in it for me? But if that's all we listen to, W-I-I-F-M, what kind of world are we going to live in? 
If everybody's just looking out for themselves, then why shouldn't I just beat the crap out of you? Why shouldn't I just do whatever I want to you if I'm only in it for myself? So Hillel said, yes, start with the self and self-worth, but you can't end with that. Then you have to say, but if I'm only for myself, what am I? What kind of person am I if everything's about me? And what would that lead to? What kind of community? What kind of family would I have? What kind of community would I have? That's where abuse comes from. After all, what's domestic violence about? What's domestic abuse about? It's about controlling another human being, fundamentally. It's not about the abuse. It's about the control. Abuse is just the way to control. And whether it's physical abuse or emotional abuse or sexual abuse or financial abuse or child abuse, whatever it happens to be, it's about one person exerting, having the need to say, it's all about me and I need to exert my control over you, whoever you might be. And so Hillel said, if I'm only for myself, what am I? What kind of human being would I be? And if not now, now when means once I recognize my own value and what I need to do to bring that value into the world of my community for you, the if I'm only for myself, what am I? And what am I doing sitting around thinking about it? Then I need to act. Then I need to do something. Because there's only now. There is no tomorrow. There's only now. And later on in the in Avot, I didn't put this particular one here, but this is the place in the Talmud where one of the rabbis is quoted as saying, maybe I did put it, who knows, who remembers, is quoted as saying, we should repent one day before we die. And then the other rabbi with whom he is having a conversation says, well, how do we know what day we're going to die? And the first rabbi says, right, therefore, we should repent every day, right? We should come clean every day. If not now, when? If you don't say the things that you meant to say to someone you love now, when are you going to say it? There is no tomorrow. There's only this day. There's only this moment. We all only get this day, this moment, this time, you know. So putting off till tomorrow means putting off forever because there is no tomorrow. There's only this day, and then with any luck, if you're still alive tomorrow, there's another this day. But this day is the day that you, you need to act. So that's what Hillel meant. That's what he was talking about. He was talking about how to, be, how to have agency in the world. What do you think, Evelyn? Well, there's also, like, finding that balance, too, right? You know, that's very complex. And... Um, um, like today I learned a lesson that I definitely have to speak up for myself in order to be my best self, mm. you know, and mm. it, I mean, that's a, applied to a lot of things, yeah. different layers, all the layers, but so it was really appropriate. And if not now, when, to me, it, it feels like it's when there's something to talk about, you know, as a way to, to make improvement, you know, like turning off the news. Like, sometimes we just got to do that. I don't know. Like, yeah. and focus on other things. You could take it that way, too. You could say, if not now, when, as a real question. And the answer is, when is the appropriate time? Because there's also a time and a place for everything. So at the same time, it's part of the tension of life is, you know, we only have today. But just because you can doesn't mean you should in life. One of the greatest oh. challenges of life is knowing what not to say and what not to do, right? But when there's like magical things happening, and we all know when that happens, you just got to kind of go with it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Life is filled with magical things all the time. It's just... Well, that's the whole point of... Find the balance. Find the sacred in the everyday, in the ordinary, because that's where you find the sacred. You know, that's why the first blessing prayer in the evening prayers of Shabbat, and actually every evening, but in Shabbat we, we read it, Ma'ariv Aravim is about the stars in their heavenly courses and the planets and how amazing it is that you can go outside every day and amazing, imagine 2,000 years ago when we didn't have all the lights. We had a blackout here. I don't know if you, your particular home was, but our home was, <clears throat> we had all the electricity go off yesterday for, I don't know, an hour and a half or so. All of a sudden, all the lights went out. As it, whenever that happens, it makes me think, gee, imagine if all the electricity stopped for a month. Imagine if all the electricity stopped for a year. Imagine if somebody got into our grid and just killed the electricity permanently. 
what would happen to our society instantly overnight? You know, in an hour and a half, I had faith, however, that someone's fixing it, something will happen, and an hour and a half later, whatever, all of a sudden the lights came back on again. That's the world, I, the brilliant world I get to live in. But the rabbis of old who didn't have electricity said, you want to find God, look in the heavens, not because God is living in the heavens, but because how can you not be a, have a sense of awe and humility looking at the vastness of space, what Winnie now has on her little square there for us all to see, as a matter of fact, beautiful, thank you, is the vastness of space. And how can you not have a sense of humility, awe, wonder at, at the orderliness of the universe? You know, the magic of the universe is that I have this little thing, and I know that 100% of the time, if I let it go, it's going to go that direction. How does that happen? Every time it goes that way. I never let go and it says, yeah, I think I'll go that way. It always goes that way. That to me is where you find holiness in the everyday miracles of life. And that's now. That's the now. But knowing when and when not to say something is also one of the great challenges. Uh, I see my time is up, but let's keep going for a moment. Shimon Ha Ben Gamliel. I knew I wouldn't get through all these. Shimon Ben Gamliel grandson of Hillel, who was beheaded by the Romans in 50 CE, just so you know, used to say, all my life I grew up, I grew up among sages, and I found nothing better for a person than silence, which is really an act, uh, a statement about humility. That is, when you're around really smart people, maybe it's good to listen and not talk as much. I, of course, have the problem of talking all the time, but um, that was always my problem. I used to get sent to the principal's office all through elementary school because <laughs> I couldn't stop talking, as you can tell. So I went into the right profession. I get to talk all the time. What do you think I became a rabbi? I couldn't stop talking. Anyway, so Shimon ben Gamaliel said, all my life I grew up among sages and I found nothing better for a person than silence. Not learn." He also said, notice there's three things here. Not learning, but doing is the main thing. And one who talks too much brings on sin. He was all about the talking and versus the doing. And in fact, the rabbis have several times, they ask the question, well, is study more important or is action more important? Studying or doing? Studying or doing? And ultimately, they hedge their bets instead. Study that leads to doing is the most important thing. Because ultimately, for Judaism and Jewish civilization, it's not just studying. We are so big on study. Rabbis are teachers. We're big on study, 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 study. But it's about the doing, 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 doing that really matters. We don't get judged by our thoughts. We get judged by our actions. We get judged by our behavior. We don't. Our sins are not sins of thinking. You remember the famous Jimmy Carter you know, I was lusting in my heart and I was sinning. Jews go, think whatever the you want. It's what you do that matters. You know, up here is yours. You know, your secret, you can think whatever you want. How you act is what matters. How you treat your fellow human being is what matters. Whether you get involved in supporting the West Side Food Bank, as we do every high holiday. This year was like over the moon how much we supported them but and we're going to do we're going to have an interfaith thanksgiving service again this year as we always do of course this year it'll be on zoom ki is hosting it rebecca is going to be having an integral part in making that all work and once again our offering for our interfaith service which should be very cool it's the monday before thanksgiving like i think it's the 23rd of november in any event we'll go to the west side food bank because food insecurity because of this pandemic of course has gone through the roof also way up there's more homelessness, there's more food insecurity, there's more domestic violence, there's more drug use, there's more prescription use, all of those things. So in any event, um, I did say this was only going to be an hour, I think, didn't I? I know you'd like to stay with me for the next six hours, all of you. But I want you to point out that this was three, threes and threes and threes. And so um, what I'm going to do is thank you for logging in. Thank you for joining me. This is sort of the introduction to it. And because I only did a few of them, I think I'll keep them on. And next time we'll do more of these and I'll have some other ones from other places as well. And uh, because I won't have that whole introduction, I'll just stick with, with some of the texts. 
and bring you some other sort of interesting Talmud texts like, um, you know, you should uh, bless the bad as well as the good. And the Talmud text that says the prisoner can't free himself from prison and where that comes from. Interesting things. So thank you all for coming. Love you all. Thank I appreciate you. you taking the time. Thank you so much.